Now today, today I'm going to try to catch you up real quick and to send us out of here. And I don't say this lightly. I actually mean it. I'm actually dumb enough to believe that I could send you out of here with a different worldview uh, of how you live your life and how we live our lives, especially if you call yourself a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you're still trying to figure out, and we have several that are part of our community, that, that, that that's them. And that's why we always say we are a community where you can belong before you believe. Uh, maybe my hope is that you might hear something today that would give you what you need to take that next step towards embracing the fact that there's a God that loves you, a Savior that loves you, who came to this earth and actually died and paid uh, for what separates us and separates you from God, not just so that you can be a better person, but so that you could actually have an established relationship and be at peace with God in this life and the next, with who Jesus describes as our Heavenly Father. Now, we started this series by saying if we pay attention to the world and we pay attention, pay attention to culture and what they're saying about Christianity, and again, I've ha I had a conversation like this just within the last week. Uh, the summary is this. Christian, Christian, a Christian is viewed as a judgmental, homophobic moralist who thinks we are the only ones going to heaven and we secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. And that sounds really harsh, but I'm just telling you, a lot of people, for them, they, they see that's what you know, Christians are, how they view the world. Then the second week, we listened to a famous author, Anne Rice, and sort of her summary of Christianity as she decided, you know what, I just can't be a part of this anymore, and she just decided to quit the whole thing. It's a quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. And for those of you that were here, some of you, disputatious was a brand new word. You've tried to work that into conversation so you can sound really smart, and you do. Uh, but the point is that for many of us, that's our reputation. Because from the very beginning, we've said that our problem is that we're known as, or we call ourselves Christian, but as we discovered, Christian, or a derivative of Christian, Christianity, it only appears three times in the whole Bible. It was a derogatory term used by those outside describing, who, how do we, what do we call these Jesus followers? So consequently, the term Christian isn't defined anywhere in the Bible, which means that you can be a Christian and believe and do just about anything that you want. That's why there are Christians on every side of every political issue, every social issue. Christians go to war with other Christians. Vote, uh, Christians vote against each other. So no wonder we've got a bit of a branding and an image process. But when we open Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and looked at the accounts of Jesus's life, we discovered that Jesus referred to his followers as disciples, which in, in the New Testament is a very narrowly defined term and what you believe, and what you do, and specifically how you're to treat other people. And at the very end of about three years of teaching and telling parables and performing miracles and all this, uh, Jesus gets his closest followers together, and he boils it all down to this. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are, and then here's our word, disciples, followers, my learners. By this one thing, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Not Look at what they believe. I want people to look and identify you as a follower of me based on one thing, and that's the extraordinary way in which you love each other and ultimately how you treat other people, the extraordinary way you treat other people. Now, one day Jesus is teaching some people, and uh, some people came to him and said, Jesus, of all the law and commandments, which is the greatest? And he says, there are, six, you know, there are 613 laws. We, we, most of you remember this. You know, they're the top 10. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then the second 
is like. And in the context, it means as important. The first one you cannot do uh, without doing the second one. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said something of just extraordinary significance. And somewhere along the way, Jesus' followers, and us included, like we're in this, we lost sight of what Jesus said next. He said, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law, all 613 laws, the top 10, all those things that would be added later by the teachers and the writers of the New Testament. All the teachings of Scripture hang on these two commandments. Do you know what that means? It means every time we decide we want to pick up the Bible or we want to wrestle with, well, what does the Bible say? What should I do in this situation? What does it say about this or that? And what does the Bible say about them? And what does it say about my singleness or about my dating or about my husband or my wife or my marriage, about raising children? What does it say about my morality, about sex? What does it say about anything? Every time, every time we pick up or we reflect on or think uh, or we pick up the scriptures to find a scripture, to find an answer, to find a command, to find a thou shalt or a thou shalt not, the things that instruct us and teach us the way we're to go. And again, don't miss next week. Jesus said, make sure you look all at all of that through the filter of love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Don't you ever dare use God's word to avoid doing God's will. And don't ever, ever use God's word to hurt or harm or disenfranchise other people. So that led to the big question, which was the question that I gave all of us to, to actually practically, how do we live this out? In fact, just gave you like a six and seven eighths a day assignment last Sunday uh, that you would just go through this week and, and pause. And in every situation and scenario, just pause and ask this question, what does love require of me? And I was so impressed. A friend of mine, she's part of this community. She actually wrote with a Sharpie, W-D-L-R-O-M on her forearm to help her remember throughout the week. And I thought, this is awesome. You people do listen. So it's great. So in other words, if the big idea is that people are going to know that I'm a Jesus follower by how I treat other people, specifically those inside the faith, then I need to ask this question every single day when it comes to how I relate to my singleness or my boyfriend or my girlfriend or, or my parents or my husband or my wife or my children, the people I work for, the people, those difficult people I work with, what does love require of me? And this is a game changer. This is a game changer for many of you who grew up in church because uh, for most of the evangelical and the Christian world for decades, for the, over the past century or more, the tendency has been to look at the commands and forget the intent of the commander. We saw this just a couple weeks ago as a very prominent evangelical leader was in a scenario where he's interviewed on stage in front of hundreds of other Christians. And number one, he should never have been asked this question, by the way. But he gets asked this question where he names another leader that happens to be a woman within the, the Christian evangelical world. And he asks the guy being interviewed, what word comes to mind? He said two words, go home. Like she should go home. She, she doesn't have a place in this. That question never should have been asked, and he had no business answering that question, especially in that way. And for people who have been Christians for a long time, their tendency and their inclination is to pick up the Bible and point their finger and use it as a club instead of a mirror and say, not this, you don't do this, you need to stop doing this, and you, you know, look what it says right here. 
And Jesus, and, and as, just as an important note, now, Jesus doesn't say that we shouldn't have hard conversations about hard things. That's not what he's saying. In fact, don't misunderstand me. None of the New Testament writers say that we shouldn't have hard conversations about how we live our life, how we exercise our morality and relationships, and how we treat other people. It obviously does. We absolutely have to have hard conversations. But Jesus says, before you go there, you first go. You first ask yourself this question. What does it look like to love my neighbor as I love myself? In every relationship, in every conversation, in every conflict, to pause and at least ask the question, if I were to step into the realm of what Jesus, the type of relationship and life that Jesus is calling me, what does love require of me? And there are so many things that Jesus could have filled in the blank on this, that you will know, they will know uh, you are my follower if you, and then fill in the blank. The brilliance of his answer and his statement, we, we, we find it in our own personal experience every day. In fact, I'll, I'll, let me say it this way. Uh, there are some of you I don't know. And yet, I know something that is absolutely true about every single one of you. And it's this, that there are two categories of people that have, the, have had the most influence on your life. They are the people that have made you the single adult you are, they are the people that have made you the husband or the wife or the mother or the father that you are today. These are, there are two categories of people that most set you up for successful uh, success in dating relationships or in your marriage or in your work relationships. Uh, two categories of people that uh, have set you up to be able to relate to people uh, successfully or in such a way that maybe perhaps you struggle to relate to other people. These two categories of people did not influence you or impact your life because of what they believed. They, they didn't impact you. Uh, it wasn't about whether they were Christian or religious. The two categories of people that have had the most to do with who you are today are those that hurt you deeply and those that loved you profoundly. Those that hurt you and those that loved you. When when you find yourself in counseling because you've bumped up against something and you just can't seem to get to the other side of it or get through it, where does a good counselor take you? To those two categories. And, and, and you know what's tragic about this? Is that many of you and many in our culture have been hurt deeply by people who had accurate theology. Many have been hurt deeply by those who believed the right things, who never missed church on a Sunday, who knew every chapter and verse, who were also able to point out how all of the ways that you fell short and every sin you committed. You were hurt deeply by people who from the outside looked like fine, upstanding citizens, but behind the scenes they just erode the life out of you and crush your soul. And some that set you up for an adult experience that in some ways has been painful and difficult. And for some of you, you'd say, I, I feel like I'm always just trying to compensate, not for someone's theology or whether or not my parents believed uh, or believed the Bible or they were Christians, but because I was hurt so deeply. In prison, there are pastors and priests with impeccable theology who hurt children. And the children who are adults today, they are not impacted by that man's theology. They're impacted by the way that man treated them. On the flip side, some of you, you've moved into adulthood with extraordinary self-esteem, extraordinary outlook on life and potential because somebody loved you profoundly. 
And the odds are, if you were to tell me the story of that, uh, their theology probably wasn't all that sophisticated. They probably, probably didn't know Greek or Hebrew, but they gave you something that set you up for success that goes far beyond theology and belief. They loved you. It may have been a great parent or a coach or a principal or a teacher, somebody who just came alongside you. They showed up in your life when you were in your teens or maybe your early 20s, and they just poured into you. And for the first time in your life, you experienced unconditional love. And every one of you, eventually, you open up to someone and you tell your story, and you're just like me. You tell a story of hurt, and you tell a story of love. You tell a story of individuals who it was beyond theology, it was beyond Christianity, it was beyond church attendance. You felt and experienced something with them. It spoke directly to your soul. And now you operate in your life as a single or a husband or you husband, you parent, you wife, you relate, you lead from doses of hurt and doses of love in your life that you've received. So let me put it this way. The way you've been treated has more to do with who you are today than what you believe. This is why what Jesus says is so extraordinarily profound, and it's why those of us who, who, who say that we're his followers, we've just got to get this, because somewhere along the way, the Jesus movement shifted from behave to believe, because when Jesus launched his movement, it was all about how you love, and somehow over time, it became all about what you believe, and if we would simply do what Jesus did instead of arguing about what he said the world would change. The, the reputation of Christ followers would change. The influence of the church would change. Jesus did not say, a new command I give you, believe correctly. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you believe correctly. I mean, have you ever stopped to consider how much time and money and energy has gone into publishing and print and online and social media with people saying, uh, people who say they follow Jesus arguing with one another about exactly what Jesus meant by what he said. If we want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, then we simply need to look at what Jesus did. And what he did made it clear that believing requires almost nothing. Behaving requires, in some cases, everything. In the beginning, it was simple. It was love one another. And, and, and it was constantly going back to the question, what does love require of me? And because Jesus knew the heart of men, we see it again and again and again in the Gospels that every time Jesus interacts with someone, he interacted with them based on their story. And we've all experienced this, right? Because we've all had somebody uh, that we've experienced in our life, we didn't really like them, they got on our nerves, they just irritated us, their behaviors and their choices, they didn't make any sense, they kind of offend you maybe, but then you hear their story and your entire attitude changes, doesn't it? Because suddenly it's like, oh, it makes sense now. It's like, why does he do that? Why does he act that way? Why does she do that? Why is she so fill in the blank? And then one day you actually have the chance to sit with them and hear their story. And it's like, oh, and your entire attitude changes. Jesus, every time, every single time, he interacted with an individual. He intera interacted with their story in mind. He interacted, he answered this question in every conversation through the filter of, what does love require of me? This is why Jesus' love was so inconsistent. That's why Jesus could be so fierce with one group and so compassionate to another. 
He says to one guy, one rich guy, you need to go sell everything and then you can come follow me. But then he says to another rich guy, hey, you're almost there. Then he says to another guy with 20 minutes left on the clock and he could do nothing, hey, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Because they were different people with different stories on different paths. And Jesus, he, he didn't just carry around a list of, ver- of verses that he threw out at every single person. Jesus' response is always to look at their story and say, okay, in light of who they are and in light of who I am, in light of what they've been through, in light of what I've been through, what does love require of me? And can you imagine what would happen in your families? Like as you think about Thanksgiving is just around the corner and many of you families are going to get together or Christmas. Can you imagine what would happen in your families or in our community in our nation, if just those that name the name of Jesus would put down all of our weapons and arguments and objections and all of our stupid theological quirks and just decided for a week or a month or or just a year to proactively and reactively live, I'm simply going to ask the question, what does love require of me? And then I'm going to act or I'm going to react based on the answer. Let me paint a picture. If in your life, let's just say, and you're going to influence more, but let's say you just influence and impact one life, and then they live for another 50 years. Like, do you get it? You have influenced 50 years of human history. And then you multiply that out. Let's say you impact three people, and they live another 50 years each. You've impacted 150 years of human history. And, and, and the bottom line is, though, you, you, you and I, we, we have to decide. Like, what do you want your impact and your influence on others to look like? Because you have a story to tell, and then your interaction with other people gives them a story to tell, and you have to disguise, decide because you have two options. You can hurt them deeply, or you can love them profoundly. Those are your only two options. It's not what you believe. It's how you treat them. Now, to to help with this, I just want to give three statements to help us get better at not just simply believing the right things, but living out what does love require of me and when it comes to loving God and loving others. So just three statements. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Don't do anything that will hurt someone else. And don't be mastered by anything. What does love require of you? Love requires that you don't do anything that can hurt you. Why? Why? Because your heavenly Father loves you, and you can't do anything that hurts you without hurting him any more than my four sons. They can't hurt themselves without hurting me. Why? Because I love them. What does love require of you? It requires that you never make a moral decision, a sexual decision, an ethical decision, a relational decision, a financial or professional decision that hurts you, because when you hurt you, you hurt the one, and you hurt the ones that love you most. It can't be helped. You might say, it's just between me and me. It's not just between you and you. It, because you are loved. It's not just your life. Because your life impacts others. It's not just your world. It's not just your relationship or your profession or your reputation. Your heavenly Father loves you. And love requires that you respond to his love by letting him define what it looks like for you to take care of you because he loves you. 
What does love require of you? It requires that you don't do anything to hurt someone else. Now, I'm not talking about serving in the military or law enforcement or anything. I'm talking about our inter- interpersonal relationships. I'm talking about regardless of how I understand the wor- world or how I view my Christianity, regardless of where I am in my maturity, that I'm just not going to do or I'm not going to say anything that hurts another person. And here's why. Because every person you or I interact with is someone whom God loves as much as he loves you. Everyone you speak to, even your worst enemies, even the people that for whatever reason can't stand you, the people who have hurt you the most are people for whom Jesus died. And I realize this is tricky and it's messy because it involves confession and confrontation and pain. So loving, loving the way you need to love is taking out a scalpel but never taking out a saw. That you decide to filter, uh, the, the filter through which my words and actions will come out is one in which I'm not going to hurt, I'm not going to betray, I'm not going to deceive or tempt or abuse or hurt another person. I'm also never going to position myself to be someone's regret story. That's why for just an example of other ways that we can do that, as recently as last week, I talked about uh, when, as far as God and, and his desire, his best for us, his boundaries for us when it comes to sexual intimacy, that, that, that part of it is to protect us and to protect other people. That God's best for you is that until you publicly and legally stand up and you make a commitment, all of you, to this other person, you don't have a right to their bodies and they don't have a right to yours because it's God's best for you. And here's the proof. I've done about 150 weddings in my life, and about a third or more of those weren't Christians. So fun. And yet, when doing premarital counseling, do you know what I've never, ever heard from the bride or the groom? I've never, ever heard from the bride or the groom. I am so glad I practice. I am so glad that I slept with other people or that my fiance slept with other people, whether it was one, 20 or 40, whatever. You know, now I feel ready. I've never heard that. Ever. You know, I've heard every time, whether they're agnostic or Christian or whatever, regret. Regret that whether it was a previous relationship that at the time they thought, this is the one I'm going to spend the rest of my life with but they were wrong or they just decided I'm just going to keep swiping right or somewhere in between. I've, I've heard repeatedly, I wish I would have waited. I wish you were the only one. And, and again, I just share this as an, as an example because part of not doing anything that hurts someone else is bigger than just not hurting their feelings. It's never ever positioning myself to be someone else's regret story. And love requires that you not be mastered by anything. You know why? Because whenever you are mastered by something, then it means it is your master, not your heavenly father, not Jesus. You cannot live with two or more masters. If if you try, it will keep you from loving God and it will keep you from loving those that he's put in your life. No one should ever have to compete with your anger. Nobody should have to compete with your addiction. Nobody should ever have to compete with your porn addiction that affects you and your relationships more than you know. No one should have to, ever have to compete with your temper. 
or your appetite. No one should have to compete with your obsessive compulsiveness. So no one should have to compete with your laziness or greed or stubbornness. Or nobody should ever compete with your willingness to hurt a relationship in order to accumulate more or keep a grip on green pieces of paper with dead presidents on them. Refuse to be mastered by anything because God, God's your master. You know what love requires of you? Love requires that view that you get rid of anything that competes with his lordship for your life. Anything. And in some cases, it's anyone. Someone that pulls you repeatedly off course for God's best for your life because you cannot love, as, love God and love your neighbor as you should as long as you're mastered by something else. So don't do anything that hurts you. Don't do anything that hurts someone else and be mastered by nothing. Now, it's easy for me to say, right? I get that. It's a lifelong process. And as I go through the list, some of you may have done something. Some of you may have thought of other people. Oh, I'm so glad my husband's here to hear this today. Or I wish, you know, I'm going to send this to my college son, have him listen. I, you know, I wish so-and-so were today to hear that message. But isn't that the same perspective of the people that hurt you most in your life? The people that claim to be Christians, and yet they found it so easy to shed light on your shortcomings, failures, sins, and faults. What if we just decided we're just gonna we're gonna love these people extra? We're gonna let God shape their hearts. What if we decide uh, whatever it takes to get to a place where I'm not hurting myself any longer? I'm gonna go there. If I need to get counseling, I'm gonna get counseling. If I need help, I'm gonna get help. I'm gonna confess. I'm gonna break these habits. I'm not gonna do anything that hurts anyone else any longer. And where I have, I'm gonna confess where I'm hurting them, and maybe they don't even know it. I'm gonna confess. It's gonna be a scalpel, but never a saw. It's going to be a bit painful, but it's going to lead to healing. And I'm going to confront some people because I've not loved them as I should. I've let them get by with destructive or hurtful things, and somebody needs to confront them, and I haven't been loving them as I should. And so I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to say something to them because I don't want them to keep hurting themselves. I'm not going to remain silent, and I'm not going to be mastered by anything. So to bring this series home, here's where it boils down to us, for us as a community. When we as, for those of us that are Jesus followers or we as a church leverage anything other than love, we ultimately lose our leverage. Because in many ways, we have lost our leverage in culture and much, much of the world. Jesus led with love. He led with grace, which then gave people the ears and then get positioned to be able to hear the truth. But it was love first. Before we ever did anything good, Jesus died for us. And many, many centuries ago when the church got the power and the control and the money and the influence and they were able to persuade politics and influence legislation, which are not in and of themselves bad things. Don't get me wrong. But the problem is once we had all of those things and we had the power and we had the sway, we abandoned love and we began to influence and leverage something else. And on that day, whenever that happened, we lost. Once there was a handful of Jesus followers, groups of people who had no book, no literature, no publishing, radio or television, no, no governmental influence. They had nothing. And time after time after time, they stood on one simple idea. What if we loved one another as Jesus loved us? 
And as we interact with other people that don't, don't know or they don't believe about Jesus, what does love require of me? And we know, we know from history that culture was influenced, how paganism that we can't even imagine was turned upside down. Just a few months ago, I stood at the mouth of a cave in the Mideast in which people and babies were, and other, were thrown in as human sacrifice. And that type of paganism was turned upside down, not because they had status and power and wealth. It was because they loved one another in such an incredible, unheard of, unconditional way that it, nobody felt coerced. They were drawn. They were drawn to the edge. Come and see. No one's going to push you in. Nobody's going to push you away. Come, watch us love. And if that ever characterizes my life and characterizes your life, there would be changes in our families. There would be this change in our city. And in America, there would be leverage like we can't imagine. Because you cannot preach people into loving Jesus. You cannot preach or legislate people into loving each other. We can see that really clearly, right? You cannot preach or legislate people out of a habit or addiction. You can't preach or legislate a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. We can't legislate or preach children into faith. None of that happens through that. It only happens when it's seen. So I want to invite the, the band to, to come on up. Maybe we will be the beginning of a generation. The beginning of a generation that begins to create another spiritual awakening in our city and our country, transforming our city and our country by being a people driven by one core question. In every interaction, what does love require of me? Uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men and women, these children, that we are just a growing family here. Uh, and I pray, God, that you would continue to show up in our ways and in our lives in dramatic ways and that we would see you doing a work that is not our power. Because if we try to love this way just based on our own strength and ability, we're totally going to fall flat on our face. We need your help. We need the power of your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, who Jesus described as the helper in this life. God, we cannot love this way without you. We acknowledge that. So, Father, I pray that as we leave here today, that you would help us and that you would point us to those people that need that kind of love. And for some people that they need it most desperately from us. God, you would give us the courage, the words, whatever it takes to make that happen. In the name of Jesus that I pray.